Everywhere Marie Ivanovich went turned bad. She started off in Somalia. How did that go? Uh, later in the tweet, is a U.S. president's absolute right to appoint ambassadors. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. My name is Justin Robert Young. This is the November 15th edition of the program. Coming up a little later on the show, we're going to have an interview about the history of Ukraine. And indeed, our guest worked with the woman who is giving her testimony right now, Marie Yovanovitch. The latest on Roger Stone, the mailbag, some more things. But first, let's discuss the sound you just heard. What you just heard was some real main in 2019 stuff. Donald Trump. Uh, in the midst of being interrogated in absentia during impeachment hearings. Today's guest is Marie Yovanovitch. She was the Ukraine ambassador until she was removed, which, man, did we spend a long time talking about how important Marie Yovanovitch is and how wrong it is that she was removed. And... It sounded compelling. She sounds like a compelling person. She certainly did her time uh, in service to the country by way of being a diplomat. Uh, she even drove right at the heart of one of the things I was going to joke about on the Wednesday show, which is that diplomats have dinner for a living. She literally said during her opening statement that there is a nasty stigma that all we do is throw fancy dinner parties. So dunk on me, Maria. But beyond the tweet, and we're going to get to the tweet in a second, but just as a baseline, I just have a problem thinking that if the pathway to impeachment and removal and galvanizing national support behind it is predicated on us understanding the true North Star of who was corrupt and who wasn't corrupt in Ukraine, then I, I just don't know if that's the sturdiest foundation to build upon. Because ultimately, this is a grievance that Marie Yovanovitch wants to air, but I suspect for most Americans, or at least those undecided, it's going to sound a lot like a work squabble. It's going to sound a lot like somebody who got fired being very upset that they got fired. And they might have every reason to be upset that they got fired. Uh, she seems to have dedicated her entire life to a certain craft, and then she feels that she was unfairly pushed out. But unless you already presuppose criminality, and I know that I am speaking to at least 30 to 40% of this audience, if not more, that absolutely presupposes criminality to Donald Trump based on how he has acted previously. And then there's 30 to 40% of you that think he can do no wrong and that he is being misunderstood and smeared. But everybody else in the middle, I just don't know if you get to, oh, he needs to be removed. But to get there, I need to give you a history lesson on a bunch of names with 15 letters and very few vowels 
and this one was corrupt, but this one wasn't corrupt. And this one that called the other one corrupt is was lying, but he wasn't the other one who was corrupt. And I know that people said that I was bad, but the people who said I was bad were bad, so they're corrupt, and therefore their charges of me being incompetent or corrupt are not true. Like, it just is messy. People just don't have a history of it. I know I'm going to hamper on this again, but this is why if they were going to push for impeachment, I think the Democrats should have gone with the Mueller report. Because at least everybody knew what the, 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 the facts on the ground were. So let's go ahead and get to the tweet. During Yovanovitch's uh, statements and, and discussion with Adam Schiff, President Trump tweets the following. Everywhere Marie Yovanovitch went turned bad. She started off in Somalia. How'd that go? Then fast forward to Ukraine, where the new Ukrainian president uh, spoke unfavorably about her in my second phone call with him. It is a U.S. president's absolute right to appoint ambassadors. They call it serving at the pleasure of the president. The U.S. now has a very strong and powerful foreign policy, much different than previous administrations. It is called, quite simply, America First. With all that, however, I have done far more for Ukraine than Obama. Now, this, again, happens while Yovanovitch is testifying. In fact, it comes right after she talks about how intimidated she was by Donald Trump mentioning her in his call with President Zelensky in the transcript memo thing that Trump released at the beginning of all this. Here's Yovanovitch talking about her reaction. I was shocked and devastated that um, I would feature in a phone call between two heads of state uh, in such a manner uh, where um, President Trump said that I was bad news to another world leader uh, and that I would be going through some things. Um, so I was, it, it was, it was a terrible moment. Uh, a person who saw me actually reading the transcript said that the color drained from my face. I think I even had a physical reaction. Um, I, I think, you know, even now words kind of fail me. But here's the key. She is then asked if she took the line that she would, quote, go through some things, unquote, in that initial conversation between Zelensky and Trump, if she took that as a threat. I didn't know what to think, um, but I was very concerned. What were you concerned about? She's going to go through some things. It didn't sound good. It sounded like a threat. It is, of course, shortly after that that the Trump tweet comes in, therefore reinforcing the Democrats' uh, narrative on, you know, uh, Trump intimidating witnesses, which, man, I, I personally don't know what the president publicly... Uh, stating his opinion on somebody's work record uh, in service to the country where that, you know, uh, uh, begins and ends. Like, I don't know. I, I honestly, I do not know. I don't know whether or not 
the president is able to just say, yeah, this is how I'm doing my job. I didn't like her. I didn't like the way she was doing stuff. Because the president has a right to be wrong there. Again, it is serving at the pleasure of the president, not serving at the logical outgrowth of my past achievements for the president. Oh, boy. But uh, uh, we certainly uh, will we'll see more of that. I mean, it, it seemed like at least the way that the Democrats reacted to it. This is something they're going to hammer. This is witness intimidation. And by the way, we have the fallout of the Mueller report continuing to happen around us. Roger Stone is found guilty on seven counts today. And in case trying to figure out who is corrupt and who is righteous in Ukraine was uh, too easy for you, let's let's now take a peek into <laughs> the the tangled, complicated world of the Trump supporter army. Corey Lewandowski, the first campaign manager for the Trump campaign, tweeting today uh, on the Trump News, reunited and it feels so go. I assume he means good. Stone and Manafort to reopen new quote unquote consulting firm behind bars. Which I'm assuming is to mean that Roger Stone was part of the reason why Corey Lewandowski was fired and Manafort was the one who took Corey Lewandowski's place. Now both Manafort and Stone are in jail. And before we go any further, let's turn to the 2020 election real quick. It looks as if we might have a harbinger of the campaign undertaker. Yes, as surely as the Silver Surfer heralds the coming of Galactus, anonymous quotes from a failing campaign very often herald the coming of a campaign suspension. And here's the headline from Politico. No discipline, no plan, no strategy. Kamala Harris's campaign is in meltdown from Christopher... Caldelago of Politico. And it boils down to this. There's a rivalry between campaign manager Juan Rodriguez and the candidate's sister and chairwoman of the campaign, Maya Harris. This comes as fundraising has fallen off a cliff, as her poll numbers have fallen off a cliff. And and really the question that you have to ask yourself is like, think about all the biggest moments in the primary so far. And now ask yourself, where is Kamala Harris in any of these conversations? You know, the big thing now is the the hardening line between the centrists and the, and the progressives. Where's Kamala? Is she, I mean, her lane is the centrist lane. She should be having the kind of ascendancy that Mayor Pete is. But, Again, man, she spent her capital on dumb stuff, like trying to kick the president off Twitter. Here's the money quote. It's a campaign of id, said one senior Harris official, laying much of the blame on Rodriguez, but also pointing to a leaderless structure at the top that's been allowed to flail without accountability. What feels right? What impulse you have right now? What emotion? What frustration? The official added. The person described the current state of the campaign in blunt blunt terms. No discipline, no plan, no strategy. This is hard when your most 
successful archetype that you've ever used in your career if you're Kamala Harris is the law and order liberal. The reform from the inside liberal, which you would think is ready-made for centrism, and yet she, I mean, that's the thing, it's like, she gets killed by the progressives for not being progressive enough. She fails the progressive purity test. But yet she doesn't get the credit of being a safe pick. What a disaster. Absolute disaster by Kamala Harris. And at this point, I'm curious if she makes it to Iowa. Like, she is doubling down on Iowa right now. But let's go ahead and take a look at her polls. By average, she's polling in sixth, according to Real Clear Politics, at a 3.3% uh, average. And her last five polls are three, four, three, 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 and two. Well, here, we'll do an extra one just for laughs, too. She has not polled in double digits since August. I mean, really, it was July and August and June where she was into the 16, 18 percent range and since then it's fallen off a cliff in the place where she needs it the most there's gonna have to be a real serious thought for her to to drop out early before she just gets her ass kicked especially if she's still asking for money i mean that's when these things end is when the money runs out you gotta wonder for her whether or not making it to iowa is feasible A reminder that you can support this show by heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Again, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. If you've got the $3 sub, well, then you get two extra podcasts a week, right? One on Monday, one on Thursday. It's fun. Fun for everybody. Head on over there right now. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Politics! Our guest today is Matt Polly. He's an associate professor of history at Michigan State University and a former Facel Fellow in the political section of the U.S. Embassy in Kiev. Yeah! So not only does he know about the history of Ukraine, and he's going to give us the the five-peso version of it, because obviously it's very, very complicated, but, but also he's got some experience inside the embassy that has been at the center of of so much discussion over the last few weeks and surely for a few weeks after this. You can go ahead and check out his book, Breaking the Tongue, Language, Education, and Power in Soviet Ukraine from 1923 to 1934. And he's currently working on a book about the history of street children in the city of Odessa. Also, spoiler alert, he was in college in Moscow during the fall of the Soviet Union and I totally stopped the interview. Cold. So I can ask him more questions about that. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Matt Polly. I would like to welcome Matt to the show. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to be on the Politics, Politics, Politics program. <laughs> Pleasure to be here. Thank you. All right. So Ukraine very obviously is dominant in our news cycle now. But what we like to do on this show is try to understand as much as we possibly can uh, before we are at the point in history that we are now. So uh, where is a good starting point? Looking back from now, these impeachment hearings, is there any kind of natural starting point where we should look back to in terms of Ukraine 
to understand the country better? Well, uh, I'm a historian, right? So that's always hard to locate a specific time. And one of my pet peeves is that we call these places post-Soviet republics or former Soviet republics when my students at Michigan State University have no memory of any state called uh, the Soviet Union. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, it's been a long time since that was around and since Ukraine was part of that state. But nevertheless, I suppose... Uh, Ukrainian independence on Christmas Day, uh, December 25th, 1991, is as good a place to start as any. Uh, you know, from the American perspective, the president at the time, Papa Bush, George Herbert Walker uh, Bush, um, who famously decided that uh, that the Soviet Union was worth keeping intact for uh, as much as possible, right? That it was a security risk for the United States to push for any independence of any state with exception of the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and, uh, and Estonia, uh, which had already enjoyed an interwar period of sovereignty had been pushing hard for independence, but that was not the case for Ukraine. So the U.S. generally supported the idea of Ukraine remaining part of the Soviet Union until the Soviet Union seemed to be falling apart on its own. And at that point, uh, so uh, President Bush made what was famously called a chicken Kiev speech on a visit to the Ukrainian parliament in uh, 1991, in August of 1991, where he argued for Ukraine's retention of the Soviet Union and warned against the danger of Ukrainian nationalism and pro-independence movements in Ukraine and, uh, and basically supported uh, Gorbachev's idea for a reformed Soviet Union that must include Ukraine. Ukraine's a big place. Uh, it is the largest country in Europe after Russia, if we consider Russia to be part uh, part of Europe. Um, and uh, the Soviet Union wanted to, to hold on to it. And, and uh, George Bush uh, Sr. Uh, supported, supported this idea. Um, but after things seemed to be going, uh, after the a failed coup, coup against Gorbachev, uh, uh, Ukrainians got even more nervous about their continued membership in the Soviet Union and Ukrainian parliamentarians who were rather conservative, by and large the majority, uh, about the idea. They resisted the idea of calling for outright independence of Ukraine, uh, then began to push for it hard. Uh, there was a referendum in Ukraine in December of 1991, where 92% of the Ukrainian population voted for uh, Ukrainian independence. And at that point, in fact, already prior to this, the, the uh, administration of George H.W. Bush uh, accepted the idea of Ukrainian independence, began to support it uh, explicitly, viewing now Ukraine as an important country uh, that needed to be stabilized in uh, because of the prospect of Soviet collapse and because of worries, I suppose, of what direction Russia might head in uh, head towards. So, uh, so uh, in the immediate aftermath of that, Ukraine became a very 
um, significant recipient of uh, American aid. Uh, after the administration of George Bush, Bill Clinton came into the presidency uh, and pushed hard for support of Ukraine. I mean, if I can ahead. stop you real quick, because it, it seems like just right off the top, especially coming out of the, the Soviet Union, whatever the reformed version of the Soviet Union was was, you know, at one point hoping to be. That America has had, uh, uh, at least at its outset, a fairly fickle relationship with our relationship with Ukraine. If initially we were like, no, stay. And then when they go independent, we're like, awesome, cool, here's a bunch of money. Uh, yeah, I mean, but, you know, I guess we first have to acknowledge that the U.S. is not in charge of all these things, right? Sure. We have to acknowledge the right of Ukrainians to decide what they want for themselves. And uh, I think... To be fair to the administration of uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, they uh, reacted to the situation on the ground. They've, um, uh, you know, uh, made a fair analysis when when events shifted. Uh, would have taken probably a pretty prognostic administrative uh, official to truly truly anticipate Soviet collapse. Few of us. Did I was a student in Moscow at the time in 1991, and oh, wow. I had instructors in my university in Moscow. I had no idea this thing was going to happen. So <laughs> you know, uh, so so the U.S. the U.S. reacted to to what Ukrainians decided to do, and then threw their support pretty wholeheartedly towards Ukraine. So under Bill Clinton, Ukraine became. Uh, the third largest recipient of U.S. foreign policy aid, uh, and a fact which still astounds my students, they struggle up until this year really to locate Ukraine on a map, and, and yet it has always been uh, a priority uh, for uh, U.S. foreign policy interest, at least uh, after the, uh, the end of the Cold War. Can I just ask you, I know we have we have precious little time here and we have a lot to cover in terms of Ukraine, but I am so fascinated with what it would what it must have been like to be a student in Moscow during the fall of the Soviet Union. Can you can you just yeah. sum up like what what was that experience like? Uh it was a bit surreal. Uh you know, there were <laughs> there was shortages in basic goods. Uh I remember going to um, a local grocery store and just having the shelves be stocked row after row with huge uh, bottles of vinegar. Bottles is not really the correct term, but uh, I don't know, almost like vats of vinegar. And that was all that was for sale. And, uh, and I uh, had to go to essentially private markets in order to buy food because uh, or to um uh, cooperative restaurants, uh, which were slowly coming into existence to, to find sort of a ready, ready assurance of food. So you knew something was wrong, right? Yeah. Um, we also traveled outside of Moscow, went to Riga, which uh, is the capital of Latvia, and things were already, you know, uh, there had already been violence between pro independent uh, Latvians and uh, Soviet security forces, uh, and we witnessed the aftermath of that violence. There were barricades erected in downtown Riga with graffiti uh, in English for, I suppose, our edification and every 
tourists that came through Riga, the very few people, very few number, uh, very small number of tourists who went there, but uh, said, you know, Russians go home and things like that. So, <laughs> you, you know, there was some fraying on the edges and that not everything was right in the center. But I suppose as a, you know, I started off this as a student of Russian, uh, continue to study in study Russian in, in grad school and, and still use Russian uh, a lot. Uh, but um, I, I guess as somebody approached this from the perspective of Russian studies and really Soviet studies, I had this idea, well, this is just this sort of natural evolution of things that we're going to have a reformed socialist uh, party in power under Gorbachev and it's more going to be a more democratic form of socialism that will govern a freer uh, Soviet Union in which citizens have um, more liberties to express their opinion. And there's a greater, I suppose, gesture to um, national sensibilities of non-Russians. But, um, but you know, what I saw in Riga gave me pause. Uh, I didn't go to Kiev at the time, although I'd been in Kiev as a high school student in 1987. So Kiev is the uh, Ukrainian pronunciation of the capital of Ukraine. Um, uh, and, you know, the, the things were a bit different there, to be sure, but I don't think I had a true understanding of um, what made Ukraine not Russia, right? And what yeah. was truly distinct. Um, so so when, when the actual collapse happens, nobody knows. You don't know. Your professors don't know. This is something that you thought there might be reform, but when it all comes down, there's just like confusion, shock, surprise. Like, what is what 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 is what is the emotion around uh, of you know Moscow? Uh, well, I wasn't there on the actual day okay. days of the coup, which were pretty heady days. But, yeah, you know, I was back in the states by that point, and I got a lot of calls questioning, uh, asking about my safety because because uh, my my. Friends at my university had no idea that it was that I was back. But, yeah, um, you know, uh, I went back one year one year later and uh, and went actually again to Moscow and 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 then I traveled through the capitals of the Baltic states, now newly independent again, uh, um, Tallinn, Riga, and Vilnius, um, and uh, yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> You just didn't know what the future was for all these places, including the center itself. But I remember being in the Baltic states and seeing very young soldiers, right, um, who were now equipped with uniforms with the national insignia of their newly independent countries. And, and I was similarly aged, I suppose. Uh, and I thought, really, can, can you defend yourself if, for some reason, uh, events shift and uh, and Moscow wants that territory back. Um, so, you know, uh, yeah, the, they were days uh, in which I, I don't think um, if you look back at the writings of people who were writing at that time, I, I don't think they had any clear idea of what the future would be. Uh, and certainly maybe uh, the truly smart uh, uh, among us at the time uh, might have predicted uh, Russia's recovery uh, as a result of its exploitation of its considerable national natural resources and 
sort of um, ultimately the um, the boon of petrodollars that uh, the current Putin government uh, is enjoying. Um, so um, Russia ultimately made a resurgence, for, but for certainly in 1991, 1992, and then for much of the 1990s, Russia seemed like a pretty broke broke place and the places that uh, separated from Russia didn't seem too much better. Now, something that uh, obviously has come to the forefront, and thank you so much for sharing that, by the way, that was, that, that is, that is awesome context that I think people will really, the listeners will really enjoy. Uh, But you can't mention the industries of Russia without also discussing some of the corruption that has at least been reported through there. And obviously that also has an outsized role in at least the American coverage that we get of Ukraine. If you can trace back where some of the the reputation for uh, corrupt government and industry in Ukraine is, is there is there any point where things begin to get worse? Uh, well, I'm going to def- definitely give you the layman's view of this because I'm not an economist. But, sure. um, you know, when do things get worse? Uh, they get worse pretty quickly in the, <laughs> in the early to mid-1990s, where, you know, this, this was a, um, uh, what had been in existence was a socialist economy where the government owned uh, all major, all major industries, uh, and then uh, there's a turn to privatization, uh, and those who have, who have um, established positions, high-ranking positions in 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 um, state firms and state industries, uh, profit from the pr- privatization, right? So they acquire a large number. Uh, of, of interests or um, uh, a sort of ownership stake in, in these industries uh, at dirt cheap prices. So that, I suppose, in, in a broad measure explains the emergence of oligarchs and the fact that um, many of the politicians whose names uh, are unfamiliar to Americans or they seem, seem to ring oddly against our American ears. Um, that's ultimately the roots of their wealth. And, you know, what I've written about is some of these men and women, uh, in the case of Ukraine, turn ultimately into champions of Ukrainian independence and advocates of reform. And one of the reasons uh, they do that, I mean, they got their riches through a highly chaotic and um, and uh, prejudicial privatization process, right? It wasn't a democratic privatization yeah. process where everybody had equal access to to buying into um, former state properties. But that once they had their wealth, they want to they wanted to protect it. And I think one reason to explain the emergence of very wealthy reformers is they're worried about uh, constant shifts in government. So um, uh, they do not like the absence of rule of law, ultimately, because the absence of rule of law means that who is ever in power can gin up charges uh, against them and take away their wealth. Uh, So, uh, you know, the tax, uh, tax police the tax system can be used in very impartial 
prejudicial way against uh, enemies of the current political establishment. So reformers want to ensure now that there are even rules of the game, essentially. And so that now all of a sudden you have these kind of uh, uh, microwaved oligarchs that they get very, very rich, very fast. There is, as you explained, even in the, the post-Soviet world, this this very who knows where we go from here atmosphere. And then I guess, you know, extend that out a few decades and you get a lot of people that are making a lot of decisions to make sure that they're not deposed or or taken for what they, you know their, their wealth or their influence. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I had um, now, I guess, <laughs> uh, somewhat long academic career, but uh, when I was, um, I had uh, uh, in the early 2000s, I served as a Facel Fellow, which was a U.S. State Department fellowship given to people with advanced degrees in Russian East European studies because we needed people with that sort of specialty to staff what were still relatively new diplomatic posts um, in the former Soviet Union, right? So all these new countries had been created and we needed embassies in, in each of these places and we needed particular expertise. And that's how I ended up working for the political section of the U.S. Embassy in Kiev. Um, and I remember distinctly um, my boss, so the political advisor to the U.S. ambassador at the time, a guy named Carlos Pasquel, uh, although uh, the deputy chief of mission uh, at the time who I worked under was Marie Ivanovich, who was the most recently, um, uh, most recent permanent U.S. ambassador yep. to Kiev, uh, to Kiev, who was ousted by the Trump administration. Anyhow, uh, I remember him uh, going to a a sort of um, mixed martial arts or taekwondo tournament run by the head of the tax uh, administration for Ukrainian gentleman by the name of Zarov, who had this essentially paramilitary force underneath him. And that was the power of the tax administration. That was the power of, of the government at the time under a president by the name of Leonid Kuchma. But every president of Ukraine and every president, I suppose, of a post-Soviet republic until, you know, fundamental reforms happened, had this potential to use the mechanisms of, uh, of state against their enemies. And to me, that was, you know, vivid, vivid indication uh, as, I, uh, as I knew about it during my time at the embassy and I've constantly thought of that because it came back with, my my uh, my boss, who was not particularly uh, martially inclined in any way, he had been <laughs> given this huge trophy uh, to represent his attendance at this essentially combat. He was given for, a trophy for, for showing for, up. Yeah, he, yeah. He came back and put it in in the desk, uh, <laughs> the front desk of the political section of the embassy, to, as a reminder, memento of his sort of. Um, encounter with you know the the hard teeth uh, of what most of us viewed at the time as as a as a semi authoritarian uh, state. Yeah. Uh, so so in terms of the U.S.'s relationship with Ukraine, as as we covered at the very beginning, obviously there's a lot of questions around where some of these republics go post Soviet Union. Eventually, the United States. 
uh, recognizes Ukraine as a ally and starts, you know, a relationship in terms of giving them financial aid. Is there is that an unbroken line or, or do we have any turbulence in that relationship leading up to our modern era? Uh, absolutely. There's I mean, uh, there's turbulence, um, particularly at the time I was there. So uh, in the early 2000s. Um, uh, so I came on the heels of uh, the disappearance and then discovered um, murder uh, of a uh, internet journalist guy named by the name Hohore Gongadze, uh, who wrote for an uh, internet newspaper called Ukrainska Pravda um, that attacked the that were critical articles of the president at the time. This gentleman I've already referenced, Leonid Kuchma. And his body was found outside Kiev near the airport, but he's still decapitated, right? Um, and it later came came to the surface uh, that uh, that uh, essentially the the President Kuchma's bodyguard at the time, um, uh, a guy by the name of Milnichenko, had made a digital recording of Kuchma suggesting that this journalist be taken out by a couple of Chechens and de- dealt with. So the implication was that he was to be murdered um, at the um, uh, at the orders uh, of the president. Um, it was all sort of murky, uh, but uh, and the U.S. didn't explicitly make charges against the president. But what did shift is sort of the uh, emphasis uh, on American support of uh, freedom of the press. Um, I had the human rights portfolio at the time. So uh, at, uh, whenever there was any uh, reporting of any violence directed against a journalist or um, sort of political persuasion, to put it politely, um, uh, of the news, uh, that was something we reported with greater vigor. Um, and then um, uh, ultimately Kuchma finishes his uh, second term and he uh, designates his prime minister by the guy by the name of Viktor Yanukovych um, uh, as his successor. Uh, and Viktor Yanukovych also came from a, um, you know, a history uh, of some sorted um, connections to 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 crime uh, he was certainly not seen uh, as a reformer and uh, by many people in Ukraine he was seen as an extension of the corruption that was associated with Leonid Kuchma um, uh, so um, uh, so the, uh, he ran for for office. He ran for um, the presidency and was challenged by the former head of the Ukrainian National Bank, um, by a guy by the name of Viktor Yushchenko, um, uh, who uh, essentially pro-reform, somewhat reductionist, but uh, people that, that believe that Ukraine was fundamentally part of the community of European nations and that Ukraine needed to orient itself ultimately towards integration with the European Union. They supported him uh, also because of his strident calls for fighting corruption 
in Ukraine that was now uh, associated with Kuchma and this um, pretender to the Ukrainian presidency, uh, Yanukovych. Um, so uh, it's, a, it's a complicated story, but um, elections were held in judgment of most uh, international observers. They were fixed. Um, uh, the, the election commission first declared uh, Yanukovych, uh, Kuchma's former prime minister, prime minister as um, winner of the electoral contest. People took to the street and what, streets in what was known as the Orange Revolution. And um, ultimately, the Ukrainian Constitutional Court ordered a, a, a repeat of the election in which the reformer Viktor Yushchenko emerged uh, as, uh, as winner. So the U.S. found itself in a difficult position at that time, trying to, you know, essentially remain um, impartial as to which person won, but but certainly very partial uh, in terms of defending the integrity of Ukrainian elections, defending the right of every Ukrainian to cast their vote freely without coercion and have that mo- vote mean something in a honest um and uh in, in an honest election that um that uh, promised some measure of integrity so um then you have george w bush uh at the time as president uh when when this is when this is happening and george w bush throws uh, his support towards the uh, winner of, uh, of this electoral contest and the champion of the Orange Revolution, uh, Viktor Yushchenko. Ultimately, his presidency didn't. He fell precipitously in opinion polls, partly because of his failure to really achieve fundamental change, um, uh, change in, in Ukraine. And uh, and the gentleman I just referenced. This is the confusing nature of Ukrainian politics. <laughs> Uh, Victor, Yana, Victor Yanukovych stages the political con, uh, comeback um, because uh, of um, the the sensibility uh, uh, on the part of many Ukrainians that not much had achieved. Why not give this guy a try? Uh, he also had real su- sort of support in the industrial east in Ukraine, but also significant patronage of um, oligarchs who uh, were backing uh, Yanukovych at the time. And this is the guy who also had uh, political consultation uh, and support and, I suppose, um, uh, campaigning advice by Paul Manafort, the former campaign chairman of uh, President Trump, who uh, has since been indicted and sitting in a jail uh, in, in New York State. Uh, well, look, I, I, I very, very, very much thank you for all of this. I know that we have a heart out here, so I want to remind everybody that you can go ahead and get uh, Matt's book, Breaking the Tongue, Language, Education, and Power in the Soviet Union, 1923 to 1934. And you are currently working on a book about the history of street children in the Ukrainian city of Odessa. Uh, Matt, one question on the way out. Should I feel like a total sure. butthead yeah. for pronouncing it Kiev my entire life until I watched the impeachment hearings and realized that it's Kiev? Uh, not at all. I mean, so basically it comes down to this, right? Uh, what do we consider Ukraine? Uh, the, uh, you know, uh, 
so Kiev is derived from the Russian language. That's how it's referred to in Russian. Ah, okay. uh, Kiev is derived from the Ukrainian language. Uh, it's spelled differently. The alphabets are generally the same, although in this particular instance, there's uh, in Kiev, there's a specific Ukrainian letter anyhow. Um, so, you know, it has to do uh, essentially with how we view Ukraine. Do we view Ukraine as some Russians continue to do as essentially an extension of Russia, or do we view Ukraine as an independent and uh, and sovereign and sovereign state? Um, and you know, uh, for better or for worse, there's debates over this. But Ukrainian language is the only uh, state language recognized. In the Ukrainian constitution, there are uh, rights afforded to speakers of all other languages, most specifically Russian. Um, uh, but we might as well use the language that is the official language of Ukraine if we're going to refer to places places in Ukraine. Absolutely. Uh, again, let me please go ahead and give a, a, a gigantic thank you to my guest. Uh, uh, Matt, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be a part of the show. You bet. Thank you so much for having me. Politics! All right. It's the end of the week. Let's go ahead and open up the mailbag. You can always send in your emails, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail. Dot com. And since we're talking about emails, you can always sign up for my email newsletter, free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Five days a week, five stories a day, absolutely free, mostly gifts, sometimes hot takes. All right, Jeremy wrote in, if you think that the whistleblower's uh, identification, which is protected by law, should be uncovered, and you're saying it's the job of the press to uncover truth, not carry water for the government. How do you square that stance with victim identity protection laws? Uh, thank you, Jeremy, for writing in. So in general, I believe that there is a living, breathing agreement between the fourth estate, the press and the people. And that goes both ways how much the press is able to take advantage of their relationship with a given populace and how much they are to serve it. The goal always being to serve more than to antagonize. For example, we went through this at uh, the the Daily Orange, uh, you know, when I was there, about how to do police reports. Specifically, when you were when you get a police report, and this is how this normally goes. You you go down to the uh, and I don't know if this is still like this because I mean I don't know maybe they're listed somewhere online. I doubt it though. Anyway, the way you get a police report is you go down to the police station and you talk to the information officer, and they you know tell you to go up to this certain area, and then they'll hand you a book. Back in my day, it was it was just a, an actual book of printouts of of copies the actual reports that were written by the officers. So I'll go through them to find the ones that were relevant to the area around Syracuse University. But at a certain point, after we were publishing them, we got some criticism, and it was right that, you know, 80% of these are muggings and 
the description of the people doing the crime was a medium-built black man wearing a hoodie. And at a certain point, we had to make the determination as to whether or not it was worth it to list that information. Whether or not we were doing a disservice to our audience, which included on our staff and in our readership, medium-built black men who oft wear hoodies in the very chilly environs of Syracuse, New York, or if that was relevant. Like, what is the goal? What is the end information that the audience has? And is it worth it comparatively to saying that you should feel a chill down your spine whenever a medium-built black man in a hoodie walks by you? And ultimately, we decided that that wasn't, you know, that, that we would need another element of description beyond just that. Otherwise, it would just be a person, right? Now, if it was medium-built black man in a hoodie who was wearing a pink pompadour, now it's a different story. If it was uh, somebody that had some distinctive characteristic, that's a different story. Now, there is something more to go on. I say that in reference to the whistleblower for this. There, I mean, the, the, this guy's name is out there by all accounts. And if it's not the dude that is widely assumed to be the whistleblower, then that dude needs to speak up and say, I'm not him. So this is not something that needs to be dug up. This is something that would need that, that, you know, the, the press, I think, should amplify. Because this isn't secret. People know who he is. So while I respect the government's ability to say nobody in the government dare speak his name, I, I think if the press is willfully turning a blind eye to readily available information, well, that's, 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 I don't know. It doesn't sit right with me. Meanwhile, if you want to talk about victim identity protection laws, the most common are which are the rape shield law. So basically, there is a legal, this is more of a court thing, right? That you are legally not allowed as a defender or a prosecutor in a rape trial to bring up the sexual past and history of somebody that was raped because that can color the jury based on bias that like, Oh, well, if you screw a lot, then you obviously wanted to screw this time. And in many cases, newsrooms have to wrestle with whether or not you are going to name an accuser. Now in high profile rape accusations with let's say athletes or uh, movie stars, actors, right? Celebrities. Oftentimes these names are out there, right? Like uh, do yourself a favor. If you want to uh, see some of the, the uh, worst of humanity, whenever a college football star uh, winds up uh, getting accused of rape, just go ahead on over to that uh, team's message boards and you will see, People doing all sorts of awful mental gymnastics, uh, up to and including naming the lady.
often a lady. So what makes that different than this whistleblower? In my opinion, what makes it different is the consequences of whether or not even a high-profile college football quarterback is suspended or kicked off the team for an allegation is a speck of cosmic dust compared to the significance of doing something that has never been done in American history, and that is impeaching and removing a president. In that case, if we are talking about, I mean, when, when, when we enter into impeaching and removing a president territory, like, this is fabric of our democracy kind of stuff. So while I respect the government's ability to try and keep it quiet, I don't think that the public is better served by not having that information. I think the public at large really doesn't care all that much about whether or not the quarterback plays. Sure, there is a vocal minority that will be furious about it. But in general, and this is the kind of decision-making that you have to make from a journalistic perspective, I think respecting the privacy of the victim in that case is beneficial. Respecting the privacy of the whistleblower in this case, considering the, the, the stakes, it's the government's job. It ain't the press's. Zachary writes, between Mueller and the Ukraine stuff, if Trump was just slightly more successful at getting other people to do what he wants, he'd be in a lot of trouble. You know, that thought has certainly crossed my mind that in all these situations, the Mueller situation, this situation is always like, oh my God, look how much effort we can prove that Donald Trump went through to do this thing that he shouldn't have done. And it didn't happen. So like, is he baby's day outing his way through all this? Is he the least effective criminal of all time? I don't know, but I, I wanted to include that because that is a thought I've certainly had. And finally, Sean the Dad writes, Bloomberg joining the fray. Deval Badrick jumping in, a headache for Warren to be sure. Hillary Clinton being asked by many, many, many people to run for president. If this all were to come true, Bernie Sanders would certainly have to hand back the magical monkey paw because of all his wishes being granted. If Biden, Harris, Buttigieg, Hillary, Patrick, Bloomberg, Duvall at all dropped out and endorsed Warren, it would destroy Sanders' chances of winning the nomination. But an establishment pile-on does not do anything but assist Sanders in making it more difficult for Warren to win the nomination. Sanders may have less support than he did in 2016, but those who are ride or die become the margin of victory as more also-rans jump into the race. Sean, thank you so much for writing. As you all know, I have picked Bernie Sanders as the, the man I, I believe from early on would get the nomination, and it was based on this idea that no matter what, there's only one candidate that has either I'm voting for this person or I'm not voting at all kind of buy-in, and that's Bernie Sanders. 
And since I had already gotten burnt once on a high floor, low ceiling candidate, the one way I was not going to lose this time was that way. So, the only thing that I would caveat on this is, yes, they're all running. It doesn't mean that they will all be doing well. Like, they could all be in the 1% range, and it really doesn't matter all that much. We don't know where voters are going to coalesce around. All we know now is that voters will have a few more centrist choices to pick from. Although Bloomberg's not really a thing. Bloomberg is there in case. In case past four states, there is just a total logjam and people are, you know, at about that point starting to look around for other candidates, which I doubt because this isn't, you know, the 60s. People have already made their choices by and large. But take Bloomberg out. Deval Badrick's going to be a guy. And, I mean, Jesus, if Hillary got in, it would be just an absolute crap show. But I do think it's 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 not bad news for Bernie. In fact, if you are a Bernie fan, you should be cheering Deval Patrick on. You should be very excited about Deval Patrick. All right, that'll wrap it up for us today. I want to thank our Titanic $10 tier. Adam, Jonathan, D. Laser, Andy, Paul, Mike, and Brad. Of course, you can always join their ranks. Come on, go ahead and get into the $3 club. If you'd like, takepoliticsseriously.com is where you do that. You can email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. And I would like to remind you that the music has been provided by Valesco and Trop Killers. You can follow me at Justin R. Young everywhere. But till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying... Politics has three names. And if I were to tell you about shows I've listened to, I would say that some talked about politics. Some talked about politics, and another one even talked about politics. But this is the only show that talks about all three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>